0: Thanks, everyone, for being out today. It's great to be together. Um, This is obviously the last day of 2023, and what a wonderful way to end 2023 by worshiping God together on this last day. It's interesting. The first day of 2023 was a Sunday, so we started uh, 2023 worshiping God together. We'll end it together. That's a wonderful thing, and I'm thankful that I get to do that with you today. So thank you for being here. Uh, We are coming into 2024, and I don't think I need to remind you that that's an election year. You're already seeing signs of that, and there will be more signs of that throughout 2024. There will be nonstop coverage in the news, nonstop advertising by the candidates. One particularly prominent candidate is famous for his campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, and I'm not here to comment on the merits of that candidate or that slogan, but the idea is that America used to be better than it is and it needs to get back to being in that state of, of betterness of uh, where it used to be. And uh, that I think may or may not be a cam- an effective campaign slogan and our, pr- our purpose here today is not political. But I think we need to think about this with regards to religion. I think that the religious practices of many today are not where they used to be, and we need to get religion back to where it was, that we need to make religion great again. The practice of religion has drifted, it seems, for many people, and it may have drifted for us. Our religion may not be what it used to be, and it may need to be improved to get back to that again. We may need to make our religion great again. And just to be clear, as we think about our religion, we need to understand what Jesus said about it. And Jesus said that God doesn't accept just anything that you might slap the label religion on. That God has standards. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 verse 9, Matthew chapter 15 verse 9, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus said it's possible to be religious. And be doing things. And he said it could be vain. Jesus doesn't accept just anything that you might label as religion. And so this morning, let's talk about making religion great again. There must be some standard, though. What is the standard? It can't be those that are around us because maybe their religion has drifted as well. Maybe their religion is not great. What is the standard? Certainly, it has to come from God's Word. Is your religion what it needs to be? Or is there room for improvement? And it may be difficult to know if your religion needs improvement because things that drift change gradually. And we may not realize that we're no longer where we used to be. We may need to make our religion better. We don't realize that. So what, can, what standard can we use? What standard can we use for knowing what great religion looks like? I want to propose to you this morning, I think we can use the book of Acts. The book of Acts is when the church began, when Christianity began in the book of Acts. And when God designed religion, it certainly was what he wanted it to be. And when I looking at the Christians in the book of Acts, I think we can get a great picture into what great religion looks like. So how do we make religion great again? I want to tell you. If we're gonna have great religion, we're gonna have to start with religion that has uncompromising preaching. Great religion has uncompromising preaching. And preachers today are compromising in any way necessary to satisfy the masses. Preachers and churches are formulating their doctrine, formulating their preaching, on ways that make people feel comfortable, on ways that bring a large crowd, on ways that blend in with our society. Churches and preachers are compromising to fit in. For example, notice what was written in the Orange County Register in California. Anthony Donovan said this, Some conservative groups believe that divorced people who marry another spouse are living in sin. However, the number of divorces in the United States has led most denominations away from that teaching. This gentleman wrote and published that there are many groups who used to think that getting a divorce for just any reason and remarrying was not scriptural. But since society has moved away and has begun to accept that, then churches have changed their message. They've compromised to go along with that. Case in point. Take the Methodist, for example. In 1896, here's what the Methodist creed book said in 1896. That's small type. I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to read that. Here's what it said. No divorce, except for adultery, shall be regarded by the church as lawful, and no minister shall solemnize marriage in any case where there is a divorced wife or husband living. But this rule shall not be applied to the innocent party to a divorce for the cause of adultery the methodist in in 1896 taught it seems basically the same thing as Matthew 19 verse 9 said that you can't just get a divorce for any cause in 18 or 1914 here's what they said 1914 it says ministers shall be prohibited from solemnizing matrimony between divorced persons except in a divorce for the one scriptural cause again seem to be aligned in 1940 notice what they said No minister shall solemnize the marriage of a divorced person whose wife or husband is living and unmarried, but this rule shall not apply to the innocent person when it is clearly established by competent testimony that the true case for divorce was adultery or other vicious conditions through which mental or physical cruelty or physical peril invalidated the marriage vow. You begin to see that they're tempering and changing that message. It doesn't stop in 1940. In 1960, in 1960, they said this in the Methodist Creed book: In the view of the seriousness which, with, with which the Scriptures regard divorce, a minister may solemnize the marriage of a divorced person only when he has satisfied himself by careful counseling that a) the divorced person is sufficiently aware of the factors leading to the failure of the previous marriage, b). The divorced person is sincerely preparing to make the proposed marriage truly Christian and see sufficient time has elapsed for adequate counseling. So they started off saying, well, the Bible teaches you can't get a divorce for any cause. Now, if you just understand why you got the divorce and you've gotten some counseling, it's okay. Do you see how it's changing in 1984, here's what the Methodist creed book said. In 1984, where marriage partners, even after, after thoughtful consideration and counsel, have estranged beyond reconciliation. We recognize divorce as regrettable, but recognize the right, re, right of divorced persons to remarry. We encourage an active accepting and enabling commitment of the church and our society, of, uh, our society to minister to the members of divorced families. 1984, the Methodist Church said, well, if you just can't do it anymore, you can't get along, get a divorce. They have compromised, haven't they? They've changed. And would it be any surprise to you that in 2015, I know you can't see that, I wish you could, leadership voted to submit a legislative proposal that removes prohibitive language from the United Methodist Book of Discipline concerning homosexuality. The proposal would allow United Methodist pastors to perform same-sex marriages in United Methodist churches. This proposal does not consider homosexuality incompatible with Christian teachings, even though Methodists have historically regarded the practice as sinful. Do you see how the message was compromised over time? Getting away from what the scriptures teach... To going along with society, as divorce became more and more acceptable in our society, and then homosexual marriage became more and more acceptable, now the Methodists say it's okay. Do you see that? I want to tell you, if we're going to have great Christianity and great religion, it has to be based upon uncompromising preaching. Ken Wilson, who was a leader of the Vineyard Church, wrote this. He said, I have proposed a path for these pastors that allows them to embrace people who are gay, lesbian, and transgender and to accept them fully, welcome, and wanted into the company of Jesus. I wrote a letter to my congregation when I realized my views had changed and I needed to communicate the intense theological, biblical, pastoral, and spiritual process that I had been through to get to this new place It began with a burr beneath the saddle of my conscience, why was I willing to let so many divorced and remarried couples know that they are welcome and wanted, while refusing the same welcome to gay and lesbian couples. How could I say to the remarried couples, whose second marriage was clearly condemned by the plain meaning of Scripture, you are welcomed and wanted, while saying to the two mothers raising their adopted child together, I love you, but I hate your sin. Do you see what he's saying? He says, we compromised on divorce and remarriage. The scriptures clearly condemned it, and we said, nah, we'll just ignore that and do what we want to do. Well, I can't be consistent and, and condemn homosexuality then if I'm accepting other things. If I'm accepting adulterous marriages, how can I condemn homosexuality? He's absolutely right about that. You can't logically condemn one and accept the other. When you compromise, you open the door to all manner of things. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, as we studied this morning in our Bible class. Great Christianity, great religion, has to have uncompromising preaching. This type of compromise is happening everywhere. And it's happening in churches that claim to be churches of Christ. In the book of Acts, though, we see no such compromise. In Acts chapter 2, in front of the people who had been responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Notice what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He didn't soft-pedal. He didn't try and make a message that was popular. He taught the truth in Acts 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This could have cost Peter his life in front of the same people who had condemned Jesus to death. He's saying, You did it. You condemned the Messiah to death. He didn't soft-pedal the issues, did he? He wasn't compromising. He taught the truth. And Stephen is in front of an audience that will ultimately kill him. And notice the gospel that he preaches in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And they didn't stop with just gnashing at him with their teeth, did they? They stoned him. They stoned him for teaching the truth, that they had rejected God. He didn't make the message more appealing. He didn't change it so he could fit in. He had uncompromising preaching, and we need this commitment to the truth. We need never put our finger to the wind. And try to determine what is popular in our society. We can't modify the message. We can't modify the message even when it's unpopular. We can't modify the message even when there's consequences associated with proclaiming the message of the gospel. If we want religion that's great, it must have uncompromising preaching. I'll tell you what else we need to have if we're going to have great religion. We need to have true sacrifice in our religion. Religion needs to be associated with true sacrifice. You know, religion has become for many to be a spectator sport. Many go to church to be entertained. Many are looking for some type of entertainment experience when they go to church. And as a result, worship for many looks like a concert with fog machines and light shows and rock bands It's all about the show and about how entertaining it can be. And religion has taken on a consumer mindset for many. Many approach their religion by, what can it do for me? What can the church do for me? What kind of programs does the church have? What does the church offer for me and my kids? Do we have any type of after-school programs for the kids? Are there any sports leagues that the kids and I can be a part of? Are there any groups and programs that can help me? Are there people in the church that have the same interests as me? Is there a group that likes the same rest? Stuff in the church that will do something for me. There's no sacrifice in these kinds of approaches, is there? These types of approaches to our religion are selfish and self-centered. What do I get out of it? The Christians in the book of Acts knew nothing about this type of approach to religion. In the book of Acts you don't see Christians looking for programs. You don't see churches offering programs. Instead you see Christians who are devoted to true sacrifice in their service to God and their service of others. In Acts chapter 2 verse 44 In Acts chapter 2 verse 44 notice this Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. First century Christians in the book of Acts were making sacrifices to help others. And the sacrifice wasn't just selling some extra things they had laying around the house. You know, I've got this piece of furniture. I never really liked it anyways. And brother so-and-so needs something. I guess I could Put this up on Facebook and see if somebody might take it off my hands. No, they were making real sacrifices. Notice in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, beginning of verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessed laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet." These Christians were going as far as selling houses and land, real estate, in order to help others. That, brethren, is real sacrifice, true sacrifice. How many today would accept these types of expectations? How many people today would be willing to make these kinds of sacrifices. I want to tell you, it's not the person who has this consumer mindset about their religion, where what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? Those folks aren't willing to make those sacrifices. How about the guy who's looking for a softball league? He wants, he's looking for a church that has a good softball league. He's really looking for how he could play that softball game and have folks around him like that. Is he looking for true sacrifice? I think the only sacrifice he's looking for is a sacrifice fly where he could score a run. What about the lady who wants a worship service that entertains her? That wants a worship service that really has all these light shows and all these effects. Is she looking for true sacrifice? Probably the only sacrifice she's going to make is she might sacrifice an hour of sleep so she'd get up early and get a front row seat to that. I'll tell you, real religion, true religion, has to be Sacrificing, doesn't it? We, if we want our religion to be great, it's going to have to have true sacrifice. I'll tell you something else that we're going to have to have we're going to have religion that is great again. We're going to have to have religion with true conviction. Religion today, for many, is centered on convenience and not conviction. Back when the Tennessee Titans came to town, they were still the Oilers back then in the late 90s, early 2000s. There were a lot of eyebrows that were raised. Mark and Leah might remember this, but there probably aren't very many of folks here that remember that far back. There were a lot of eyebrows that were raised because you know what? Churches started moving their worship services to Saturday night so that people could go to the Titans game on Sunday. And there were a lot of people who that raised the ire of a lot of people. Well, the nerve of that how could you do that? But they did that and people went along with it. Why? Why? Is it because people are really convicted? Because people think that religion comes first and football games can come second? No. People showed where their conviction was. When the football game comes up and that's something on the calendar, guess what? Everything else has to move. Why? Because that's what's most important. We can move religion to Saturday night so that we can enjoy football on Sunday. That's okay. When we made that decision, guess what? We showed where our priorities are. That wasn't the norm in the book of Acts. They didn't do that in the book of Acts. They were convicted, and they were going to serve God no matter what. And they weren't going to make any changes. They were serving God. Notice what they were said when they were threatened to stop. They were told, stop preaching about Jesus. Quit talking about this. Why don't you guys just move on and do something else? They said, no way. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. They told them, they said, we saw Jesus. We saw him crucified. We saw him resurrected. We know this is true, and you can't get us to stop. We're going to do this no matter what. The threatening didn't work. And beating them wouldn't work either. In Acts chapter 5, in Acts chapter 5 verse 40. And they agreed with them. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they're going to threaten them. That's not going to work. They're going to beat them. They said that doesn't matter. In fact, we're glad we get to suffer. And ultimately, we know that many of them would be killed for it. But they weren't going to change, were they? Why? How could they look at it like that? Because they were truly convicted. They were truly convicted that what they were doing was right. And they weren't going to change. They were going to do what God wanted them to do. And brethren, if we're going to have great religion, we're going to have to have religion that's based on true conviction, that this is the most important thing in our life, and nothing's going to move me off of this. My service to God is the absolute bedrock of my life, and you can't change that. True conviction we're going to have true religion, or great religion, again, I want to tell you what we're also going to have to have is true love. We're going to have to have a religion that has true love. Religion was great in the book of Acts. Religion was great in the first century when it was started, because Christians had true love for each other. Notice the response that the Christians had to Peter when he was in prison in in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, beginning of verse 1, Acts 12, beginning verse 1, "...now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover." Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And as we go on in Acts chapter 12, you remember they were gathered together late at night. We see a woman's house to pray for Peter. We see examples like this, and I think we may tend to paint a rosy picture of what things might have been like. I'm afraid when we think about Peter, well, they were concerned about Peter. I think we might think that Peter was some type of model citizen. Well, it was real easy to love Peter and pray for Peter. But do you remember who Peter was? Peter was a man whose foot found its way to his mouth quite frequently. He was really good, wasn't he, at saying the wrong things, putting his foot deeply into his mouth. And he wasn't perfect in how he treated others. You remember... How he treated others, we read about in the book of Galatians chapter 2. Peter was a good good guy, no doubt. A wonderful Christian. But I'm going to tell you, he had his flaws. That's all I'm saying. He had his flaws. He had aspects about him that no doubt made it hard, I would think, to be lovable all the time. And yet Christians loved him. And they were concerned about him. And they were praying for him. They loved him... The way that Jesus loves us, with all of our flaws, with all the things that we need to improve. They loved Peter and they loved others that way. And I want to tell you, if we're going to have great religion, we need to have this type of true love. Dorcas is another example in the book of Acts that shows us true love. Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, beginning of verse 36. In Acts chapter 9, verse 36, at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But what happened in those days that she became sick and died, When they had laid her and her, they, uh, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. You could understand the tears and the love for a woman like Dorcas, who was serving those who were around her. That's very understandable. But could you stop for a minute and think about it from the other side? What kind of love did Dorcas have? She was serving those who were around her. I imagine that there were some folks that were difficult to be around in the church back then. Dorcas seems to be serving them all, doesn't she? Making those garments and those tunics for them. Dorcas seems to be the kind of person who would love and serve in spite of the challenges that others might face and present. We need to have that kind of love today. Are there going to be people in the church who get on your nerves? Yeah. Are there going to be people who don't behave the way way they should all the time? Yes. Are there going to be people who are difficult to love? Yes. We're all difficult to love at times. But if we're going to have great religion, we're going to have to have religion that is based on true love. Have you ever watched your kids break out into a terrible fight? Because one kid did one little thing that made the other kid mad. And then the other kid used that as the reason why they could act the way that they wanted to act. And then they used that reason and it just, it just falls apart. And you got to get in there and break it up before the whole house is destroyed. I'll tell you, it, acts, it happens that way for adults in the church. We begin to act in those same petty ways. And if we're going to have great religion, we've got to have true love. We need to have true unity if we're going to have great religion. True unity. There's been a movement in the religious non-denominational Christianity. Now that uh, label is a little bit misleading because non-denominational Christianity isn't an abandonment and a condemnation of denominational thinking. Instead, it's an acceptance of that. It's an embracing of that, that we can all just sort of get along, that we don't have to worry that you disagree with what I believe about how we ought to worship, and I disagree with you about how, what we need to do to be saved, and you disagree with me about this, and I disagree with you about that. We'll just sort of embrace that and say that we're just unified. We have unity and diversity is another phrase that is used. I'll tell you, that is not true unity. That's fake unity. We can only have true unity when we agree on a common standard. And that's what they had in the book of Acts. They had true unity because they were all agreed on a common standard. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, "...then those that gladly received His word were baptized, and that day were about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine." And fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, the absolute standard of God's Word. They were committed to this, and they were committed to doing this and doing only this, and they had unity. Notice the result in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They had one accord. They were unified. And as a result, the church grew greatly. Many today are tempted to shy away from this standard and compromise again in order to promote some type of fake unity. I want to tell you, we can't compromise. We can't compromise and call that unity. Only when we're unified on the standard of God's Word will we have the true unity that we need to have, the unity that we need to have great religion. Finally, this morning, great religion. Great religion has to be based on true conversion. In the book of Acts, we see example after example of people's conversions. And these conversions included people who had very sordid past, who had done terrible things. And they were converted and became as new people because the gospel was just as powerful then as it is now. Case in point, take the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had been going about trying to find Christians to kill and persecute for their faith in Jesus. He was active in that. He was on a mission to try and get every Christian he could find. And he comes in contact with the gospel, and he's converted, and he becomes a new man. And notice his response in Acts chapter 9, beginning of verse 20. After he comes in contact with the gospel, after he submits his will to the Lord's and he obeys... Notice what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Immediately he preached the, the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on the, this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased but this is Jesus Lord, in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this is Jesus the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. There's true conversion. He made a 180-degree turn, didn't he? From going to be the one who was persecuting to being the one who was being persecuted. And Paul's conversion story is not not unique. The same has happened throughout history. The gospel is powerful. The gospel changes lives it can't change yours and it must if we want religion that is great i'll tell you we must have true conversion great religion as demonstrated by the book of acts has uncompromising preaching it has true sacrifice it has true conviction true love true unity and true conversion When you compare the religion of the Christians in the book of Acts with your religion this morning, do you see opportunities to make improvement? If you see opportunities, i want to tell you, your religion needs to be improved. God wants our religion to be great. He doesn't accept just anything that we label as religion. He wants our heart. He wants us to be completely dedicated to serving Him. If you see room for improvement in your life this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian... Would you become one, having heard the gospel? Do you believe it? Hebrews chapter eleven verse six says, "Without faith, it's impossible to please Him." Will you repent of your sins? Luke thirteen three says, "Unless we repent, we'll all likewise perish." Will you confess your faith in Him, with the heart? Man believes into righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made into salvation. Romans ten verse ten. Would you be baptized? Jesus said before he left this earth, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Matthew, Mark 16, verse 16. Are you willing to make those steps today to be pleasing to God? Or if you've become a Christian and you've let your religion sort of deteriorate, will you make it great again? And can we, If we can help, will you let us know while we stand?